Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today comes from Judges 2, 6 through 10. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at timnath Hiraz in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now let's share our corporate centering prayer together. Father in heaven, you made us and you You sustain us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, you are rescuing us. By the work of your spirit, you are renewing us. As we come today, we admit we are broken and we need you. Whatever you want to say to us, we want to hear. Whatever you want to do among us, we want to embrace. However you want to shape us, we want to cooperate. As we sing Sing and and pray and read and gather at the table, may hope rise, may our hearts align, may sin die, and may Christ shine. Amen. All right, help me with the end of this expression. When the cat's away, the cat's away, the mice will play. Okay. Um, I started going around. These are my in-laws right here. It's my wife, Emily, right there. I started going around the Skaggs house 17 years ago. And uh, lovely house, lovely place. The Skaggs bought it uh, when Emily was in elementary school. And uh, they loved the house. They got an amazing deal on it because the previous owners just beat the living daylights out of the house. They've done this, you know, an amazing job with the place over the years, and it's such a fun, you know, family home for everyone to gather in. I like that bow tie. And, uh, but I, I remember, like, I've been going to this house for years, and, and fast forward a handful of years, I'm on staff at Asbury, and I'm getting to know my good friend Todd Craig, who's now with us at Cornerstone. And for some reason, I don't remember why, Todd had to take me to my in-law's house, the Skaggs house. And we're driving through the neighborhood, and Todd says, man, this neighborhood sure feels familiar. And, uh, and we pull onto the street, and he thinks, man, this street feels really familiar. And we pull up to the house, and he says, this was the house that me and my buddies beat the tar out of when their parents were out of town. <laughs> it's like, oh, my gosh. We knew that the, the previous owners, their teenage sons, would just, like, rip the place to shreds. The parents were really inattentive. And it turns out that my dear friend, Todd Craig, was one of the ones destroying this place. And he began to tell me stories that would, like, make the parents of teenagers cringe in terror about how they would rip holes in the wall. I don't even know how this is possible. On the second story and rappel down behind the wall in the bathroom on the first story, they just ripped the place to shreds because they had zero adult supervision. Because, as the saying goes, when the, mi- when the cat's away, the mice will play. And uh, in, in short summary, that's what the book of Judges is all about. 
Uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. When there's no adult supervision, when there's no one who's clearly in charge saying, these are the rules of the house, this is how uh, things go. And if you haven't been around, uh, in 2019, uh, we're calling uh, the, year, the year of the Bible. And we're slowly reading through the Bible. And so we've, we started in Genesis at the beginning of the year. And this week we read the book of Judges, which is a trippy book. A lot of crazy, really comedic stories in the book of Judges, some of which I'll share in just a minute. But Judges is, is a wild story. And it's not a comedy, even though there are comedic elements to it. It's not a comedy where there's a cute lesson at the end, like the 90s movie Heavyweights, where, where they have this like all-night sugar binge, and then the counselor gets up and says, now what have we learned from all of this? It's not a comedy in that sense. The book of Judges is more like a Shakespearean tragedy where you see a train wreck in slow motion and, and it feels like, wow, how hopeless is this nation of the people of Israel? It's a, a tragedy that shows the dangers and the limits of human liberty when we were given no guardrails, no limitations on our choices. Uh, things go off course. It's, it's a tragedy of epic proportions. And in a similar way that Christians have marked time based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you know, we say B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, the people of Israel marked time according to the Exodus. The Exodus was this moment in history where God very publicly took this nation out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to a new country. And so as the story goes, as we've been reading in the year of the Bible, Genesis uh, through now Judges, we're now on the third generation A.E. after Exodus. The first generation were those who had been led by Moses. They had been in slavery in Egypt. They knew what it was like to feel the crack of the whip on their back of their oppressors, the Egyptians. Uh, the first generation were those who walked on dry ground as, as Moses parted the Red Sea at God's command. They knew what it was like as they stood at the mountain and the mountain trembled and God was appearing in smoke and fire. They saw the tablets that Moses brought down chiseled by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments. That generation uh, wandered in the wilderness and there they died because every step of the way they whined and complained against God. Their children were the second generation who gathered with Moses on the edge of the promised land and there saw their inheritance, the land that they would ultimately take under the leadership of Joshua, the new Moses. And God confirming Joshua as the new Moses, the new leader, uh, causes Joshua to, to make the water of the Jordan River pile up. And again, the second generation walks across on dry land. And the second generation under the leadership of Moses takes the city of Jericho by hosting a moving worship service just by walking around the city and they shout and worship in adoration of God and the walls of the city come tumbling down. It's a miracle. That generation drove out the other nations, the Canaanites, and, and began to establish dominance in the land. And then the second generation died out. And in the text that Bryn read, we meet uh, the third generation, A.E., the third generation after the Exodus, and the text characterizes them in a really depressing way. This is what it said, if you catched it, if you caught it. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A generation is described in this way, that this generation did not know the Lord and didn't know everything that he had done. And I was trying to imagine a parallel for that. Imagine like the generation of Jews who had lived through the Holocaust. 
and survived had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Could you conceive of their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren forgetting all that had happened and the remnant that, that survived to the Holocaust? Uh, similarly, uh, epic things that the previous generations went through, receiving manna, uh, seeing water flow from a rock, God had done miraculous things, and yet they neither knew the Lord uh, nor what he had done for Israel which is, is a tragedy in itself. And it's a tragedy because we see a failure of the second generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this, this famous passage in the Bible that contains the Shema, some of the words that are echoed, still echoed to this day by Jews every single day. God, uh, God gave them the command. Moses gave them the command. When you're walking down the street with your kid and your kid says, Mom, Dad, why do we behave like this? Then be ready to tell your kid, we behave like this because God rescued us from slavery and led us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When your kid asks, well, why do we do that? Be ready to explain to them it's because of all that God has been doing in generations past to set us apart as a unique nation to bless the whole world. And the second generation evidently failed in that task because the third generation neither knew the Lord nor all that he had done for Israel. And not knowing the Lord in their time and not being familiar with the stories that we've been familiarizing ourselves with over the last handful of weeks and months in 2019, uh, this generation, this third generation, gets into a nasty and self-destructive habit where they would sin against the Lord and, be, and face the consequences for their actions. This, this series, this, this repetition happens again and again and again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That happens a ton in Judges. But then they cried out to God. And then God in his mercy raised up a deliverer or a judge. And the book of Judges is not so much about a person who held court in the sense that we think of a, a Supreme Court justice or a local circuit judge. Uh, the judge in this sense was a political deliverer. Uh, a rule, uh, someone who would come in and throw off the invading army or the foreign army and reestablish Israel as a sovereign state. And usually these people weren't moral exemplars. In fact, how many of you have read Judges this week? Okay, you met some like pretty compelling and interesting characters in reading through the book of Judges. Let me tell you about a couple. My favorite was Ehud. Anybody know the story of Ehud and Eglon? Uh, of course you do, because so many of you have friends and family members named after these characters, Ehud and Eglon. Uh, but Ehud was this, this is a great st story, great narrative in the Bible. Ehud, the scripture says, was a left-handed man, an Israelite whom God raised up as a deliverer. And God sent him to this foreign king whose name was Eglon, who the story tells us was a very fat man. And so Ehud goes to Eglon and says, look, I've got a message from God for you. Would you mind asking your attendants to step out of the room for a second? And uh, unwisely, he sent, Eglon sends out his attendants. And so it's just Ehud, the left-handed Israelite, and Eglon, the fat man, sitting on his throne. And Ehud pulls out his, his uh, dagger from his right thigh and stabs it into the gut of Eglon, the fat man, who was so fat, and you say, how fat was he? That the fat absorbs the dagger, hilt and all, and there he dies on the spot. And Ehud casually sneaks out the back window and goes along his merry way. That's a fun and entertaining story to be in the Bible as it is, but it's even more fun than that. 
because uh, the story goes on and says that his attendants are standing outside the door, and he's been in there a really long time. They think maybe he's gone in there to relieve himself. He's using the bathroom. And the, this is in the Bible. It says, they waited to the point of embarrassment. It's like, nobody's going to be on the toilet that long, King Eglon. They go in after a, a while to the point of embarrassment, and they find that their king is dead on the toilet, <laughs> or dead in his throne. Now, that's a fun story that's in our Bible. There's the story of Deborah, this, this female judge that God had raised up who uh, sent King Sisera on the run, and Sisera hides in this one woman's tent. And he's, he says to her, this foreign king, I'm so thirsty, will you give me something to drink? And this woman gives him a skin of milk. How delicious does milk sound on a hot summer's day when you're thirsty? So she, she slights him by giving him this milk. He drinks the milk, and he falls asleep. And there this woman drives a stake into his temple, and the people rejoice. Judges 4 and 5, another great biblical story. Uh, my, another favorite is Samson. Samson starts out really great. You think this is going to be a good dude because his mom has cried out to God for a son. God gives her a son. She makes a Nazarite vow that she'll never cut his hair. He'll never drink uh, alcohol. And, and he seems like he's set apart for a particular purpose. But in the course of time, it proves that, that Samson is a womanizer. He's kind of a dumpster fire of a human being. And, and he's, a, he's a violent man. In fact, uh, there's a story of the Philistines were opposing uh, Samson and the Israelites. God, the Holy Spirit comes on Samson in a mighty way, so he has this superhuman strength, and he takes on this army of Philistines, but in a very unconventional way. He takes a, a jawbone, of a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and using the jawbone, he you know, wipes out all these Philistines. We took a day trip yesterday where I happened to see a donkey, and I'm, you know, petting this donkey through the fence and thinking about the story of Samson and thinking a fresh donkey, donkey's jawbone would be disgusting. It's covered in sinew and hair and blood. This is what he's using to take out the Philistines, a fresh donkey's jawbone. Really interesting cast of characters. You've got Gideon in the mix, Gideon, whom I love. That's my third kid, Gideon. But he's one who doubts God. And while God proves himself again and again and again, uh, Gideon shows his, his hesitancy to believe, and yet God anoints even this doubter to overthrow the Midianites with an army of 300 people. God raised up these deliverers, and usually they were not heroes in any conventional sense. They were not moral exemplars. They didn't show off the best of Israel, but they did show off God's mercy by raising them up in the first place. And while there's relief that God has raised up a deliverer, a judge, for those of us who are reading the story, there's also a sense of disappointment because we've known heroes. You know, Samson could not stand in the presence of a man like Moses who talked to God face to face as one talks to a friend. Couldn't, couldn't stand in his presence. Moses who caused the sea to part. Moses who called for, for manna on the ground and it was so close to God. God revealed to him his divine name. Samson couldn't stand in the presence of Moses. Or, or Barak, one of the other judges, couldn't stand in the presence of Miriam who had been one of the leaders of Israel. And on the day when God led them out of slavery and crossed the Red Sea, led the whole nation of Israel in worship. They couldn't stand in the presence of Miriam. 
couldn't stand in, in the presence of Aaron, who was the mouth, mouthpiece of, of God to the Pharaoh. He was the first of, of the, the priestly line. They couldn't stand in the presence of these men and these women who were moral exemplars, who walked closely and intimate, intimately with God. They were a letdown in that sense. And as we're reading the story, we find the leaders and the hero, heroes of this third generation of believers, this third generation out of slavery, they reflected the generation that they were from. They were not moral exemplars. They were not heroes, but they were people through whom God worked mightily to deliver the people from foreign invaders. They weren't characterized by their moral fiber, by their wisdom, by their intimacy with God, but by their usefulness. And Israel ignores these major character flaws, these vices, and even the idolatry of their leaders because they're politically useful. They help them achieve their liberty, but once they have their liberty, their freedom, the foreign oppressors have been thrown off. off. They're so unwise that they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with their land. They trust these leaders and are grateful for these leaders in as much as they help them take their nation back, but they're taking their nation back for what purpose? Because they don't know their own story, because they don't know the God who has been making this nation uniquely positioned to be a blessing to the nations, once they regain their freedom, once they take their nation back, they don't know what to do with it. And so these seasons of political rest and unrest continue. They have, they have peace. They, they serve God while it's convenient and expedient for them and their political leader is alive. But when the leader dies out, they sin against the Lord. They face the consequences of those actions with foreign invaders it's three years, seven years, 15 years, 40 years. And then they remember, oh yeah, there was that God who helped us back then. And they cried out to God who raised up a deliverer and God sent help. And you think, what is this whole deal like from God's perspective? Is God okay with them coming back to him just like a, like a, a convenience machine? Like, okay, we need another bit of favor. Let's put in the quarter and twist the thing. Is God okay with this arrangement? We see in the text after a handful of cycles of, of rebellion and repentance, rebellion and repentance, that God has something to say. He's getting irritated. This comes from chapter 10. The Lord replied to them when they cried out for help. Hey, when the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me again and served other gods again, so I will no longer save you. Go cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. You use me only when it's convenient for you. God is expressing this sense of growing irritation with them. And so what's he going to do? Is he going to say, you know, I'm going to press pause on you, Israel, and maybe move on to somebody else. Clearly this experiment has failed. Now he goes on, verse 15. The Israelites said to the Lord, look, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us. They got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And then I love this line, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. We see that God is not distantly dispassionate in the whole situation. We see that God is not ambivalent about Israel's situation. In fact, he's heartbroken over it. He's heartbroken over the state of the nation that he loves, this people that he called to be a blessing to all the peoples of the world, and said he could bear their misery no longer. Even though their misery was self-inflicted, he could bear it no longer. 
As we think about this story, why has God given it to us? It seems to be the case that, that God respects us enough to let us face the consequences of our actions. God respects us enough that he's going to let us face the consequences of our actions, meaning he won't intervene, especially in those times where we've made it particular, particularly clear to him that we don't want him to. But we should also be aware that our rebellion and the misery that follows it is not something that he's unaffected by. It's something that breaks his heart. He could bear their misery no longer. And it reminds us, even in the book of Judges, where God shows mercy again and again, it reminds us of this story that Jesus told when he wanted to help the crowds understand what his father was like. You see, people were really confused about what God was like. Jesus told these stories to capture their imagination, to help them uh, realize that it was so much better than they had realized, even different than they had realized. And so he told this story about a father who had two sons. One was really dutiful and was always there. But this other son was, was kind of a wild child. He was the second kid. The second kid goes up to his dad and he says, I want my inheritance now, which is a way of saying, screw you, dad. I wish you were dead insults his father, he demands his inheritance, and the father acquiesces and gives it to him in the story. Second son hits the road, and he's finally given the freedom that he never got to enjoy in his dad's house. There were no guardrails, there were no limits, he got whatever he wanted, and it was a blast for a while. He blew his money on women and wild living, the scripture says, and then he hit rock bottom. He's working for a guy who works with pigs, which for a Jewish audience is just revolting. And there he's working with the pigs. He's eating the food that the pigs are eating, and he realizes, you know what? My dad's got plenty of money. Maybe he'll take me on as a hired hand because this is not going to work out. And Jesus continues in the story, and he tells how the son started making his way back toward his dad's house a long, long way off. And he's practicing in his mind his I'm sorry speech. And, okay, what are gonna, what's going to be the right thing to say to get me in good graces with dad again? And he's thinking to himself, surely, I mean, I can't imagine how dad would forgive me, but maybe he'd let me be like a hired hand. And Jesus tells in the story that the father's posture was not at all like what the son was expecting. Instead, the scripture says that while he was still a long way off, the father who daily had been looking at the way out of town was waiting for that son to return. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was moved with compassion toward him. He could bear his misery no longer. And he took off running toward the sun, something that an elderly man, an older man would not do is undignified in ancient Israel. And as the son starts to, 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 to get out his I'm sorry speech and tell his dad, you know, all he's done that's wrong, the father is just showering him with hugs and kisses and calling his servants and saying, hey, slaughter the fattened calf, get a robe and put it on my son, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, he's back, and the son doesn't even have time to finish the speech. And Jesus says, this is just like what my father is like. It was hinted at in a book of Judge, like this in Judges where we see the mercy of God coming back again and again and again. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And while we see uh, so clearly the rebellion and the hard-heartedness of Israel, we also see in a book like this the, the incomprehensibly faithful mercy of God who continues to extend kindness and second chances and forgiveness and offer dignity to the ones who have embarrassed themselves. 
We see Israel's folly and idolatry in the third generation, but Jesus demonstrates to us, to the 30th and the 300th generation, his posture is one of mercy and one of welcoming the prodigal back home. It hints in Judges with this mercy again and again and again what we would ultimately see in Jesus. Jesus who would come not as a short-term political deliverer in the way that the first generation of Jews was hoping, not coming just to throw off the Romans or whoever was next in line. Jesus would come not as a short-term deliverer, but as the long-term judge that the whole world is waiting for, who would throw off not the enemy of another nation, but the enemy of our soul, who would free us not from the slavery to a foreign invader, but from the slavery to sin and death, and give back to the people the freedom that they so deeply needed but could enjoy responsibly through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension and the gift of the Spirit, God invites us to break the habit that the Israelites were in of of failure and rebellion and consequences and repentance and failure and rebellion and consequences and repentance and gives us the opportunity to be remade and to become like Jesus through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The book of Judges gives us a glimpse of the character of God who shows mercy again and again and again. I think that we live in an age in which there are more ways than there have ever been to lose our dignity and to humiliate ourselves. And in a world where there's there's less and less clarity about what is right and wrong, we we discuss what constitutes right and wrong, and there's less of a sense of someone who can be an authority on it, we're still a world that knows shame. We're still a world that knows guilt. We're still a world that knows indignity. And yet in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the story of God from beginning to end, we see a God who is willing to not only forgive us, not only to welcome us back, but to clothe us in righteousness and give back to us our dignity. That's one of the greatest gifts we we, we have to offer people in Jesus Christ, is a God who's unlike us when we're training our dog and and putting their face in the mistakes that they've made and, and rubbing it in, but instead one who's restoring us to a place of dignity and honor in his family. There was a Counting Crows album a handful of years ago called Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings. And I can imagine that there are folks in our congregation who relate with that literally or figuratively. The sense of like who we are on Saturday night is really fun and then we feel apologetic and ashamed on Sunday morning coming in. We feel uh, regretful for the things, the person that we wished we'd been, that we told ourselves we would be the previous Sunday, but we've lived out Monday through Saturday and we come in hanging our head and ashamed. And yet the God who is faithful in raising up deliverers and extending mercy again to the third generation who didn't know him and didn't know that all that he had done in the past continues to be faithful to show us mercy again and again and again. And the God who is faithful to extend mercy is the same God that Jesus presented in his story of a father who's so happy just to have you home that he's chasing you down when you start making your way his direction, practicing your I'm sorry speech. And for all of us this morning, whether you have walked faithfully with Jesus for a long time or whether you're coming in today with a limp, feeling guilty for the things that you've done or the things that you've thought, I want to remind you today that there is mercy again. And we see it so clearly in what we're about to share together uh, at the table when we share Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, how Jesus allowed himself to be broken so that we could be made whole. 
how Jesus emptied himself so that we would be filled. Jesus allowed himself to be estranged so that we could be brought near. He humiliated himself publicly so that we who should be ashamed of ourselves might be dignified. And this is God's gift to us in Jesus Christ, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him and through him we might become the righteousness of God. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful, God is just, and he'll forgive us. But not only forgive us, he'll purify us. He will dignify us from all unrighteousness. And this is good news for you whether you've walked with him for 40 years or whether in the next four or five minutes you would choose to do that for the first time. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, your faithful love toward us. Thank you for this weird, mysterious way in which from beginning to end in the scriptures that you've given us, we see uh, your heart for us. How when Adam and Eve realized they were naked, you provided skins to clothe them. How while the people were complaining against you, you still continued to feed them in the morning. And while we continue to rebel against you, you continue to show us your mercy that's beckoning us to come home, come home, come home. And so I pray for my friends in the room who maybe have been, maybe you've just not been on their radar. It's not necessarily that they've been in the far off country living the life of the prodigal, but they've just not had you uh, in, their, in their field of view. They've just been doing their own thing. And there's this sense of awareness this morning through the work of your spirit, like a knocking on their heart that maybe they could come home to the family of the Father. And maybe if for, those, for those things that they've done that they feel ashamed, that the, the secrets that nobody else knows about that they feel like disqualify them from your love or from even coming to a church, you'd forgive them and you'd restore them and make them clean. Pray for all of us to have the grace to do what, what John said, to confess our sins so that you, the faithful and just one, will forgive and purify us. So if you're here this morning, you, you have just, you've been in sin, you've been in self-destructive habits that you need to confess and find freedom in. Uh, we think freedom is in doing what we want, but true freedom is in living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and living according to the Spirit. Maybe you'll find freedom this morning as you confess your sin and, and confidence and faith that the faithful God will forgive you and purify you. Confess this morning. And for all of us this morning who've walked faithfully with God, maybe we're like the older brother who takes for granted the kindness of our Father. And this morning we were reminded again of the mercy of the God that we serve. And I pray you'd help us to do as Paul said to the church in Rome, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed anymore to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Help all of us who have received your mercy in response to it, lay our lives down and be transformed that we might be different, out of sync with the patterns of this world, but transformed through renewing of our minds. And as we come to the table, would you nourish us on the person of Jesus Christ, who said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You have nothing to do with me. And so as we share this meal, would you nourish our heart and our soul and our body on the person of Jesus Christ that we might be like him in the world. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.